Hi everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Rachel Pether and I'm a Senior Advisor to Skybridge Capital based in Abu Dhabi, as well as being the MC for SALT, a thought leadership forum and networking platform that encompasses business, technology and politics. SALT Talks, as many of you know, is a series of digital interviews where we aim to provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts. Today's focus is going to be on family businesses and international investing, and I'm very excited to be speaking to a dear friend of mine, Sturgios Hoskopoulos. Sturgios is the CEO of Canoe Capital, the investment division of YBA Canoe, one of the oldest and largest family conglomerates here in the Middle East. I know that the term global citizen can be somewhat overused, but Sturgios truly is a global citizen. He has lived and worked in seven countries, including spending the last 10 years in the Middle East, and he speaks six languages. He has over 20 years of experience in asset management, private equity, and M&A. He's a member of the Young Presidents Organization. He holds an MBA and a Bachelor of Science in Computer Engineering. As always, if you have any questions for Sturgios during today's talk, just enter them in the Q&A section of your screen. Sturgios, welcome to Salt Talks. Hi, Rachel. I'm glad to be here. And hi to all the viewers of Salt Talks. Well, we're very excited to have you here. And before we dive into specifics, I want you to tell me a bit about your personal background. You know, living and working in seven countries is quite a lot, especially for a man from a small town in Western Greece. Sure, yes. I mean, I would be glad to share a little bit more about where we all start from, like myself. So I was born in a small town in Western Greece called Agrinio. Uh, I was uh, the son of uh, two, I mean, two amazing part, uh, parents who were both entrepreneurs. My father was in the family and uh, business and they used to own movie theaters. And my mother was also an entrepreneur. Uh, we were two, two brothers. So we grew up in this small town and then uh, as we usually do in Greece, uh, we moved to one of the big cities to study. So I moved to Athens uh, to do my bachelor's, as you mentioned, in uh, computer science back in the 90s. And computer science then it was in the very beginning. So we had to work on uh, you know, courses from logical design to algorithmics to networks to the whole spectrum of computer science. So that was very exciting. And actually, one of my first jobs, I mean, my first job was in uh, IT and uh, software development. Before which, uh, though I had to serve the military, so I served the Greek Navy for almost two years. And then I did my first uh, tenure on uh, a professional career by being a software developer, project manager. But I always wanted to do something in finance and to apply all this analytical thinking and uh, algorithmic theories also in the financial theory. And uh, that's when I moved to New York to do my MBA in finance. And then I moved to the asset management arena almost 20 years ago, as you mentioned. So first I was working for a financial software company, uh, focusing on fixed income structured products from you know, analyzing and uh, providing all the analytics for structured products back in the 2000s. It was in the very beginning from mortgage backed security, CMOs, CDOs, ABS. Etc. And then I moved to one of our major clients, AIG Global Investment Group in Wall Street, where I was the senior quantitative analyst for 
the, one of the largest portfolios in structured products uh, back then. And uh, back in 2004, I moved to London. Then I worked for Barclays for one year, but I was open for new adventures and moved to new places. So I was uh, looking back then to move to Asia or the Middle East, which was uh, 2005. And it was a great timing uh, to move to an emerging market. So that brought me to Bahrain, where I'm still today, in 2005 to work for InvestCorp, and uh, one of uh, the largest alternative uh, investment uh, firms in the world with offices in Bahrain, in uh, London and New York, where I worked for almost four years. Then I was creating another private equity fund until 2011. Then I moved to Beijing in China. I, start, I mean, I moved to a more entrepreneurial period, uh, which was one of the most exciting periods, I have to say, in my life, because, you know, I was venturing, right? So I was between Asia. Asia was one of the most exciting places to be back in 2011 after the global financial crisis. And I was between Beijing, Dubai, and Hong Kong for almost five uh, years and uh, spending lots of time in the plane. And uh, something wanted to bring me back to be closer to my roots, maybe. And uh, for me, Bahrain was always uh, like home. I have many good friends, I mean, very good experience here. And that's what, uh, that's when we discussed and we decided with uh, the Canoe family to set up properly under a good structure, the family investment division. And uh, that's when I came back in 2016 and we set up uh, what uh, we call today Canoe Capital. There's so many pieces about your background. <laughs> So many pieces about your background that I want to go into further detail on, you know, like the entrepreneurship, your background in technology, and also this global experience. But maybe first we could discuss more about the Canoe family. And we had Michelle Canoe, the chairman, on uh, a few weeks ago, and he spoke really passionately about how he felt really lucky that each generation sort of saw the next generation as a new business and, and very innovative. And so I'd like you to tell me about the Canoe family and how you, you know, your mandate in actually setting up Canoe Capital. And then we can maybe talk a bit deeper about the, the governance and institutionalization of it. Sure. Uh, as many people uh, from the region know, Canoe is uh, it's an institution. So YBA Canoe, which is the firm that I'm still employed by, was uh, incorporated back in 1890. So it has been... Uh, you know, operating for about 130 years. So the families from the first generation were very entrepreneurial. Uh, I think that as the region has been evolving the same way also family, the Canoe family has been uh, growing across different verticals from trading in the beginning, from shipping, logistics, to oil and gas. Oil was discovered in Bahrain, the first onshore oil in 1932, and then in 1939 in uh, Jubail. So the family, family members moved to Saudi and uh, also when UAE, Abu Dhabi was uh, growing uh, back in the 70s, some other family members moved to uh, UAE. And for example, Michal is one of, uh, you know, and the family from, of Michal's moved to UAE from the very beginning. So you have now YBA Canoe being present in three countries, Bahrain, Saudi, and uh, UAE. So that allowed the, uh, the group to attract many international firms to express their interest, to cooperate, and also do other businesses in uh, travel, like one of the largest travel agencies, 
and also set up many joint ventures with uh, firms like AXA Insurance, like Halliburton, AXA Noble, APM Terminals, etc. So over the past decades, YBA Canoe has been very well established, corporate governance is there, many family members are involved, but always aligned with the senior management team. And uh, back in 2016, there was a vision of also setting up a more unified investment practice with uh, very senior professionals, experienced professionals like myself and my team. So when we came on board, we set up from Bahrain, one team, one division to manage all investments in the region and also globally. And so having looked at, you know, the family group and the organizational structure there, how did you set up the governance within Canoe Capital itself? Well, there is uh, one entity, right? One holdings group, and there are many divisions. And in each division, there are different family members who are more involved than others. And, the, and then you have the board. So there is very uh, clear governance of each of the divisions and how this comes under one group. Uh, which is the holdings group that reports to one board. So this way, you know, there is one common vision. There is, as we call it, one canoe. And uh, governance is very key. Uh, we, for any, you know, there is always a delegation of authority where, the, you know, there is always consensus. There are different voices, different opinions, debate, in order to always come with optimal decision-making. So maybe we can talk a bit more about what that optimal decision-making looks like you know at canoe capital you're responsible for international investments across different asset classes how do you see the world when you look at the investment landscape well we are very regional first so we are very active in the region more directly when it comes to uh, global investments we don't do it, we don't do it alone we don't do it directly we do it more with aligned with other fund managers. We have our own asset allocation. We pick the asset classes that we understand and that we believe uh, from a tactical asset allocation perspective. And then it's all about selection, selection of fund managers, selection of co-investments and selection also of securities. So there is a balance, which I think, I mean, I would say that even today it's more skewed to the region when it comes to direct investments and more active management. But uh, since we set up Canoe Capital, we have been investing also globally. And we always want to do things that we understand. We don't want to, I mean, venture and take large risks in areas that uh, it's not us, we don't understand. But still, you know, it's under our overall diversification strategy and asset allocation. And you also mentioned earlier about your, your background in entrepreneurialism within your personal family and studying technology as well at university, you know, before it was even a very popular thing to study. Does this make you personally, I guess, more comfortable investing in startups and the venture capital ecosystem? I would say yes. I mean, uh, investing in startups and venture capital is more about assessing people who are the founders. Then it's about understanding the product or the service, whatever is sold to the market and to always have a clear path to go to market. But uh, having done things on my own, you know, I was not, uh, I mean, coming from an entrepreneurial family, having seen how, how, how my parents grew their business and then uh, how I set up businesses and or following other founders, you get experience. So 
then you know when you meet a young team of entrepreneurs it's very important first of all to click with them to you know understand what's the passion are they there for the long term or they are there for a quick flipping uh, of uh, adventure so that's how we start to me there are three components people product go to market when it comes to startups and technology now you know nowadays uh, is an enabler of setting up a very profitable businesses much faster. Yeah, definitely. And that, that echoes something that Michelle spoke about as well. You know, he talked about the key is to look for businesses that are going to scale and how can you help be part of that scale up that's going to happen. And I know that one area that's also of, an, of interest to you is this impact uh, innovation, impact investing and innovation area. How does that piece look like in terms uh, in practice for you? And maybe you could talk through some examples of investments that you've done. I mean, I have been always talking about sustainable investments, not for the sake of ESG or, you know, investing in uh, impact, impactful areas. To me, I'm a believer of when I invest in something like private equity or VC, it has to be sustainable for the very long term. So it's not about investing in sustainable businesses, but something that will be sustainable for the long term. I will not go to invest in a climate polluting business. Why? Because today I might be making money, but in five years I might not, right? So regulation is coming, etc. I'm a believer of impact investing when you have the balance between impact, socioeconomic, and also financial returns, because it's something that's not, I mean, charity is a different thing, right? We're not talking about charity here. We're talking about impactful investments with sustainable, that generate sustainable returns. So I'm a big believer of that area. And have there been specific, I know you work across different asset classes. Are there some examples of private equity deals that you've made this remit? Uh, we have been involved when I was also in China, right? In waste to energy. And I saw that you have a waste that is not used, but you can also generate energy. What, what better than bringing a technology that can convert waste to energy? I'm just using this as an example, right? Waste management, energy efficiency. I'm talking about sustainability. And then when it comes to digital transformation, apply technology, to existing business models, renovate them. You don't need to reinvent the business model itself. It's just about optimize the business model by though using technology, not replacing people. I mean, we need to look at also in, in the reason, right? It's not uh, this panacea of if I bring technology, it's gonna replace people and automation is gonna replace people. No, it's about reskilling people. So that's where education to me becomes critical. And not only elementary schooling or high schools. It's about universities, especially now with COVID, you see that uh, fewer families will, might send the kids to the US or to Europe to study. Why not setting up more universities here? And that's another area that we're looking at, right? From a JD perspective, like bringing know-how here and uh, even medical universities, it could be something. No, that's really interesting. And actually I did want to dive a bit deeper into if the pandemic had altered or changed your investment strategy. So was this something that you were looking at pre-pandemic as well, or was it something that's really come to the fore in the last six months or so? 
Sure. I mean, an example, sustainability, no, we were looking at sustainability even from before because waste to energy does not need only COVID, right, to be uh, proven and uh, accepted. But uh, education, setting up uh, universities in the region, like even medical universities, I think now it's even more imperative because healthcare becomes critical. Also, you know, setting up uh, universities here where the families can send their kids, it can be also uh, subsidized from the government. Training is key. We find that uh, also in Saudi Arabia, that in different areas, we need to have local uh, workforce to respond to these needs. But also I would say that food security became, as we know, right, critical uh, after COVID. So we're looking at this area as well. As you know, in UAE, there are many new setups around like facilities that are uh, focusing on that. Bahrain, Saudi, even Kuwait, we have seen that uh, they're looking at this space. Yeah, we've, we've actually had some audience questions come in uh, asking for more details on the investment strategy and I'm going to ask them. I actually wish that I had asked these myself. Um, Ken has said that you have a really interesting background and he's wondering what is your principal goal for Canoe Capital's investments? For example, is it to invest in areas very strategic or forward-looking to the parent company's focus uh, or say diversify the sources of income for the parent company? It's a mix. It's both. Uh, we need, you know, all families around the world have made money by, uh, by focusing. So you have to keep being entrepreneurial, but also under a high conviction approach. So you need first, on the one end, to know what you're doing. So that's uh, strategically what uh, we're focusing on the one side. But on the other side, also, we need to diversify for the rainy day like COVID, right? Something happened, let's say oil, we all got scared in April that uh, oil will, will remain at the levels of 10, so of uh, single digits uh, or uh, between 10 and 20. So that would have a huge impact to the region. So you have to diversify also by geography and by sector. So we're looking at, uh, at a balance between the two, but always doing things that we understand well. You talk about a rainy day. This, this COVID rainy day has lasted six months already so everyone <laughs> much longer than a one day uh we've, we've actually yeah that's true that's very true uh, we've had a question actually coming in specifically related to what you've just been saying about diversification and how do you divide diversify within your energy holdings uh and do you have any specific views on uh, oil, offshore service vehicle space and consolidation opportunities therein. I'm not sure if the second part of that question is too specific. So oil will remain, oil and gas will be there for the very long term. And uh, what we see from our clients in the region is that they're trying to become more efficient. So what we want to do as a group is to provide all these services to make them more efficient. So that's one area. But the underlying sector as oil and gas, it's there to remain, right? I mean, uh, the largest company in the world is right uh, next to Bahrain, Aramco. So it's about how they become more profitable, how they look at their bottom line. The top line is there, but also how to optimize their bottom line from a cost perspective and from an efficiency perspective. 
So that's what we're doing as a group. We're not producing all ourselves, but we are helping all producers and the petrochemicals uh, in general. That's great. Thanks, Didius. And I also do want to sort of leverage the fact that you have this, this international experience and maybe talk a bit about some of the differences that you've seen within the family office businesses in Asia and also in the Middle East. Could you maybe talk through some of the key differences you've seen in terms of approach between the two regions? Sure. Uh, I think that uh, the, this region here, in terms, for, in terms of families and uh, evolution, right? Inter intergenerational evolution is a bit more advanced than Asia, especially China, because China is a recently emerged economy until the 70s, it was still a poor country, right? So what I have seen being uh, in China and Hong Kong is that still the families are in the Gen 2, Gen 3, second or third generation max, and there are not too many members. So for them, it's even more imperative, right? To structure themselves properly and uh, to in institutionalize, otherwise uh, there will be an issue on the preservation of the wealth and the succession. So here in the Middle East, there are, I mean, the families that I know and uh, the one that I work for are more advanced. So it's, uh, the wealth has been created from the 30s, 40s, and uh, many families are a bit more advanced in terms of access, in terms of ability to manage their operations, existing operations here, but also to access investments globally. And I have seen many entrepreneurial families in the region being present in crazy places from Latin America to uh, Asia, Malaysia, of course, right? I mean, there is a strong link, Africa. So I think compared to Asia, we're a bit more advanced or ahead, but you know, there are many similarities always, right? When it comes to family wealth and uh, preservation and succession. Yeah, definitely. And when you look at investing, have you done much co-invest or many co-investments with other family offices? Is, is this an area that you're, you're looking to do? We've done in the region and we're looking globally too now. Um, yes, so that's the answer. Great. And for areas that you're looking at, and obviously the Canoe Group is a, I mean, it's it's one of the hallmarks in terms of family businesses in the region. You know, it's, it's, and it's, I think, ninth generation, and it's, you know, very progressive in terms of investing. But when you're looking at an area which maybe the family isn't so comfortable with. How do you get the how do you get the buy-in from the family? What does that look like? And we need to we need to convince first ourselves, and then to convince uh, through our governance, right, our investment committees, and the family has a say. So that's why we need to develop. I mean, what we managed to do is we developed a clear framework with investment criteria. So when we go in front of the principles, we know what we're presenting, and there is an understanding. Otherwise, you know, we defeat the purpose of uh, alignment and understanding. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, when you speak about the, the Middle Eastern versus the Asian families, I guess there's also some cultural similarities between the two regions. And one topic that keeps coming up in the SALT talks is this fear of failure. And I'd like to tie that into your 
your views and what you're seeing in the ecosystem as to A, is that still a valid concern? And B, how does that play out in the entrepreneurship space? Yeah, you're right. So there are many similarities and many families I've seen that uh, they pursue a framework of being very uh, objective than being subjective within the family. So there are family members who have different preferences, they have different interests, they have different level of involvement, understanding. So uh, the ones who are leading the family, they have, that's why governance matters, right? And also meritocracy uh, being placed uh, uh, to set all these criteria and the framework where both family and management can work together in order to utilize the best skills from the family members and the professional skills. And uh, some fail, I have seen many. I mean, especially when you have only a few members in the family, the probability of failure is higher, right? So if there is a, on, the, on the second generation, if you have only two family members who can uh, succeed, they're the founder, then there is higher risk. So if you pass the, the third generation, I think uh, it's much more structured and more robust. And there is a framework, a clear path, right? On how to have the family members involved and the best ones. Yeah. And Michelle also spoke about the importance of supporting the regional ecosystem, uh, not just financially, but also, also with you know, ideas and, and expertise and, and guidance as well. Is supporting the regional ecosystem something that you're focused on at Canoe Capital? And maybe start with Bahrain since that's your home turf. Yeah, I think Bahrain is a lovely place, right? So there is so much potential and a great infrastructure and lovely people that can attract new businesses here. So that's what we're trying to do also as a private group. Uh, bring new companies, startups, ideas, entrepreneurs, and uh, develop a new e ecosystem like Dubai has done, Abu Dhabi is doing as well. So I think the framework is there. The Central Bank is supporting, Economic Development Board is supporting. You have all this framework to attract a new business. And uh, that's what also as a private group are looking at, how to support uh, our country here and how to help all the ecosystem expand and grow. And you also look at that, I guess, bringing technology into Bahrain and, and building out the ecosystem, but are you also exporting? Uh, and we actually had a question coming in specifically related to if you're investing uh, in China and, and doing some tech transfer and partnerships uh, between China and Bahrain. Yes. I found that in the past 10 to 20 years, right? There are, there are many great, I mean, there are setups in the region that can export. So also from a venture capital perspective, uh, we have seen companies that are set up in UAE or in Saudi or even in, in, in Bahrain. For example, the best digital bank in the region is based in Bahrain next to us, it's Ila Bank. Uh, uh, so there is know-how that can be cultivated through the countries here and can be also exported not to Europe or to US, I would say. For some businesses, maybe you can do that too. But uh, the adjacent countries, the subcontinent, Africa, 
I were talking about a radius of 4 billion, 3 to 4 billion population around the region. So I believe that uh, there is uh, lots of opportunity for setting up companies now, especially with uh, technology, uh, technological support in the region and export also outside. Before, this was not happening. Only oil was exported, right? And gas and, and the petrochemicals. Yes, no, it's definitely um, evolved from a, a very one-dimensional export market, that's for sure. We've had so many question, audience questions coming in, so I'm going to try and sort of structure them into groups with regards to the governance side and also the investing side. So I'll start with uh, one of the more sort of governance educational piece. Uh, Ken's asked, how has the educational background and focus of the latest generation of canoe capital professionals influencing the focus of the group? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think Michelle also had the touch on that, right, as a family member and principal, where all family members have to study and then have to go out and work on their own, then come in the group and uh, just find an area that is of their interest and of their educational background and uh, go through and find the right spot. So governance allows for that, if I can, that's the answer. You know, that's great. And someone has actually said that you mentioned that governance matters within Canoe and they've asked specifically to pick up on the, on the G of ESG. And I know that you were saying that you're looking more broadly at investing in companies that have a positive impact, but is it that you weight any part of the E or the S or the G more strongly when you're looking at investing? And Lindsay has asked specifically if you focus on the G part of that equation. No, I think E and S are also critical, right? So when we do a due diligence on a company, we need to make sure that they are environmentally there. They're not gonna cause any, because that will uh, create, especially now, reputational uh, damage. And also will not be sustainable as a business model, right? People might not buy. So now you see many other counterparties are looking also from an ESG perspective, how they're dealing with uh, their providers of service or product. So both E and S are key. To us, it comes to due diligence. So we will rate the ESG component as well when we evaluate the company. Yeah, and if you're looking forward sort of to the next 12 or 24 months, I know you've spoken a bit about some of the investments that you've you've made thus far, but what are the key themes for you going forward over the next one to two years? I still we need to be cautious. We haven't seen what's the real impact uh, from this uh, unprecedented crisis. It's a, it's a healthcare crisis and we still don't know when we're gonna get out of it. Still people cannot travel. Uh, still uh, we have countries under lockdown in Europe. In US, uh, the rates are at a super high. So vaccine is good. Uh, I mean, the developments around the vaccine from Moderna and Pfizer are very positive, but still we need to see how this will be distributed around the world. To me, it's not a matter of efficacy only, but it's a matter of distribution and uh, effectiveness. So according to that, we're still cautious, but for the mid to long term, we're looking at, uh, as I said, some areas that will not, uh, that are high conviction for us. So we are into also travel and hospitality. Travel will not 
cease to exist. It will be there. So we might find some great opportunities again to invest in travel or utilize technology to come and uh, apply to our existing travel business. The same uh, comes to hospitality, which are uh, two of the most impacted uh, sectors right now. So we are cautious on the one end, but also opportunistic on the other end. And we are taking it, uh, you know, month by month, but uh, on the, in the midterm, we know what we want to get in terms of areas to invest. Yeah, there's certainly some great distressed opportunities out there for those people that are willing to be a little bit more opportunistic. Distressed or dislocated, right? So there are market dislocations arising every day as we go because uh, COVID was really strong, right? And it will remain in the history as uh, a major crisis or a major uh, transition to a new era. Yes, definitely. And I think, I mean, if anyone said that they saw it coming, I think they were they were lying. So it's definitely changed the way we both live and invest. Um, and just a, a specific question further on the investment side. A lot of Middle Eastern groups and families have a sort of a real estate bias. It's something they're very comfortable with. Are you doing many investments on the real estate side or it's really about diversification? Well, real estate is one of the largest sectors in the world. So it will never, it will always be there and uh, it can always be optimized. We're looking at uh, prop tech, like real estate technologies that we can also apply to existing uh, asset base. Uh, but I do believe that real estate will never cease to exist again. It's a key sector. Uh, of course, we have to be cautious in the region. We overbuilt and uh, all we should do is actually to fill this real estate space and sustain you know, the sector. I think we must have a few real estate investment professionals on the call because I'm getting a lot more follow-up questions on this. But we've, we've, people have also asked, is there a specific sector? You did mention prop tech. Are there other sectors within real estate that you're looking at? Like, is it on the residential side, uh, commercial side, logistics? It's more on the commercial side, which is closer to our DNA. So we are into logistics, right? So we see lots of opportunity into the logistics space from a warehousing perspective and, uh, you know, the value chain. So that's an area that we're looking at. Excellent. Hospitality as well, as always. I just want to, we, we have sort of, you know, less than 10 minutes left. And I'd also like to talk a bit more and really leverage this international expertise that you've had. But maybe you could talk about some of the lessons that you've brought from your international experience in Asia and, and Europe and how you've applied that to what you're doing in the Middle East now. Yeah, it's very important. I mean, sometimes when you invest in a country, it doesn't matter on what asset class to gain an understanding of uh, demographics, culture, underlying uh, norms, right? Even if I want to invest in China, I know how the Chinese think because I live there. If I want to invest in Chinese stock, I understand how the retail investors are behaving in China. So these are all, you know, going around the world when you want to be a global investor it helps for sure and uh, sometimes not always 
in a good way, but also in the bad way. What I'm saying is that working and experiencing around the world, you learn things and you learn how to avoid uh, the pitfalls of investing and how to focus on what uh, you believe uh, will actually generate the returns you're expecting. So for someone as internationally traveled as you, how have you found not being able to travel for the last nine months or so? No, actually that's one of uh, the most uh, productive periods of my life. You know what I realized? That actually we were wasting so much time by traveling uh, all over. And it, it was always an expectation from the other end too. I find now that the expectation from the other party to meet with you is not there anymore. So that makes me believe that travel will never come back to where it was because we will travel less, even if, you know, let's say COVID disappears because now we found new ways of communicating. And also it's a matter of expectation from the other party. I don't, I mean, I don't need to come to Dubai to meet someone. I can get on a Zoom and have uh, this discussion like I've had over the past nine months. So I miss traveling, but I think if I go back to traveling, it will not be like before. Yeah, I think those, the days of, you know, going to, flying inter-regional travel for one meeting are well behind us. Uh, someone has asked what you're doing with all your free time now. <laughs> working out, uh, working on new projects. You know, there are some also life projects that I'm working on. Like I, I mentioned uh, movies. Uh, we're working on a documentary about uh, movie theaters because I grew up in movie theaters, right? So, uh, you know, some areas that are more passionate for me and uh, just uh, also spending more time with good friends that before we didn't used to, right? Now you have time for spending it in more privately and nicely. Yeah, that's that's definitely a very good use, good use of time for sure. Uh, we have had, we have a lot more audience questions. So I'm just trying to address a few more before we ask a couple of easier closing questions. Uh, Mustafa has asked, it seems that the small and medium business segment in the GCC is chronically constrained in its growth potential by crowding out by the government or by other corporates. What are some pieces of advice or what are some ways that you can think that SMBs can break through the so-called ceiling? I'm sorry, Mustafa asked that the ecosystem is constrained for new entrants. Yeah, so the SMB segment is often, I guess, crowded out by some of the larger corporates. What are some ways that the smaller businesses could break through this? Well, it's not the case anymore, right? I mean, uh, as we said, startups are there to set up easier and uh, innovate and sometimes to actually compete directly through their own business models with the large corporates unless the large corporates also innovate. So to me now it's becoming more interesting and the government uh, supports now, right? I mean, you see there is all these initiatives uh, across the GCC for bringing new businesses, supporting SMEs. Uh, Dubai work, is working out on their market for SMEs, the same thing here in Bahrain through BIM. So there are initiatives out there that support entrepreneurs to come over and set up uh, their own business. And there is talent too. The local talent now, it's much more skilled than before. Yeah, I think that comes back to the points you were making before about education as well. There's definitely a great human capital element in the region. And 
on you know talking about COVID and some of the the trends that you're seeing which of these trends do you think will be sticky so you know accelerated versus more temporary so trends in food logistics or or home delivery and how are you looking at sort of analyzing that sector so food security having fresh food you know near your plate it's very important so we see this trend already emerging through COVID. Uh, digital healthcare, it's, you know, it's also an emerging uh, trend. Education, ed, ed tech, uh, anything around tech. <laughs> so, but in vital sectors, my belief is that uh, we have uh, underestimated what technology can bring to boring sectors from logistics, to education, to healthcare, to energy, uh, to industrials, right? In order to optimize these uh, businesses and make them more profitable. So I think COVID accelerated the trend of technology adoption and also human capital reskilling. So people need to learn new things now. Now we're getting people writing in saying that you've said they work in a boring industry so be careful <laughs> um, what they say. i didn't hear that, that you referred to the industry as a boring industry <laughs> no but boring is good eh? sometimes it's yeah non-cyclical <laughs> and just closing question because we are almost out of time and i just wanted to thank the audience for asking so many questions but with the international background that you have and your sort of passion for education as well, do you mentor other people uh, within the family? And is that something that's important for you in terms of passing on knowledge to the next generation as well? Yes, we do. And that's one actually of the most exciting parts of my involvement with the Canoe family. So I see the young family members always, you know, we're like friends too, right? So. They're always asking, and I'm always not only not only me, my team, and other professionals are always willing to share the know-how and uh, to try to mentor uh, young family members, also to help them identify what they really want to do. Because education is one part, but here you have a conglomerate into so many different verticals. Also through kind of capital, we are into so many industries, so they can get a much better idea in reality what uh, excites them, what uh, actually could be more, uh, you know, matching, could match more their interest and their skill set. So yes, mentorship, young family members is actually, there is, this is part of the framework within Canoe of how professionals interact with uh, younger family members. Well, that's great, Sturgios, and thank you so much for all that you're doing you know, within the investment ecosystem and, and also within the, the mentorship one. And uh, thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you oh, today. It was a pleasure. And if I may say something, I have to say that it's like I'm talking to you, like uh, we're sitting, you know, at a cafe and we have a very nice open discussion, but I'm so glad that there are so many viewers. And that's what Salt Talks have achieved uh, over especially the past eight months uh, to give these interviews to people so you and Anthony and John and all the other interviewers, you know, right, the interviewees. So the discussion is, uh, I hope, much more pleasant for all the viewers. Well, it's so. definitely been more pleasant for me. And I hope that next time it will actually be in person. <laughs> <laughs> Inshallah.
inshallah. No, but thanks for your kind words, Jojos. We really appreciate it. And you know, we had about 25 audience questions. So everyone was clearly engaged as well. So thanks so much for giving up your time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Rachel. And thanks to all the viewers. Thank <laughs> you.